Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. The other day I watched the, uh, what'd you do? <laughs> would-be blockbuster, the Billy Zane starring Phantom. Oh, Phantom. Boy. oh boy. You remember this I movie? do remember that. Is that um, <laughs> mid-90s? Is that mid-90s? Mid, oh, it is mid-90s. Yeah, it is. Bro. Oh, it's Mondo. It's so funny. It's very Mondo. It's tubular as fuck. It's just so funny because um, he's in this throwback serial adventure very like 1930s sub spielberg kind of a storyline mm-hmm. and yet his costume is the most 90s oh yeah spandex patterned purple jumpsuit oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> he looks like a member of the foot clan who signed up to be on like american gladiators yeah i mean he's got like a full-on like you know tinky winky with the diamond mask going on there he does yes exactly it's great it's just so weird though because no one comments on it now in terms of like you look so fucking weird man you are out of time dude what is happening here why are you dressed like that you live in the jungle with like a wolf and a horse who help you on your adventures you should not be dressed like you just left the aggro crag exactly Anyway, so I was I was looking up a little bit of the backstory on the character and I found something really really weird which was that he was like this transitional character between early serial and pulp novel vigilantes like mm-hmm. the shadow mm-hmm. and the spirit and guys like this where they were sort of they were sort of like proto batman yeah. yeah but they were just gangsters essentially yeah Mm-hmm. You know, and they didn't have any sort of stylization to them. They just, like, wore fedoras and shot people, basically. Mm-hmm. And Superman and Batman shortly followed the Phantom, who was a newspaper comic character. But I thought it was so weird that 
the Phantom was essentially that kind of a character. He he went around with a gun mm-hmm. and shot people. Yeah. <laughs> As a vigilante yeah. and had this weird sort of adventure novel backstory to him where he came from this like desert island, essentially. But he also wore a spandex bodysuit from the jump. Right. And I thought it was so strange that that particular element predated superheroes. You know what the I'm spandex, saying? Spandex, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah the okay, jumpsuit. Okay. Mm. You first had a guy who was like, a gangster in an adventure story mm-hmm. wearing spandex and then you had superheroes. superheroes after that i see what you're saying also wearing spandex onesies so you're saying that the phantom is a trendsetter he was a trendsetter and he was a fashionista absolutely yeah but it's just so weird to me that it wasn't oh first we invented a superhero and then we decided their look is going to be the one piece jumpsuit it's that mm-hmm. that preceded the heroes themselves. Yeah. That's just very strange. That is me. that is surprising. Um, yeah. And given, yeah. so we're thinking, if we're thinking the Phantom, we're talking about early 19, like 1920s, 1930s. Yeah, like early 30s. Early dude. 30s. Yeah. So, yeah, that's strange to think that that would be the outfit. That would be the outfit for a gangster yeah. who is running around the city. Uh, shooting people. Yeah. <laughs> that's the other weird thing about the Phantom is, yeah, he doesn't have any sort of superpowers he doesn't really have any special skills he just has a giant gun gun yeah he's just a dude in a jumpsuit with a 45 he is clearly not worried about camouflage either like he wants to stand out and be shot at apparently like who runs around in the city in a purple jumpsuit this guy is ready to eat bullets man he's the most visible person on earth Especially in this time period, yeah. where everyone else you wearing know, brown, black, in a fucking gray. trench coat and fedora. Yes, exactly. Um, he just wanted to be known. He wanted his presence to be known. Yeah, uh, but that movie is a trip, dude. It's it's fucking wild. It's just funny because it's like God, they poured so much money into this thing at the time, yeah. and they had like no idea how to do. <laughs> action spectacle basic character stuff like none of it none of it all that they have is production design just like smeared all over the screen early Uh, like 90s comic book movies are something else Uh, and i'm thinking they're so strange i'm thinking dick tracy of course dick tracy and i'm also thinking liam neeson and uh was it dark man yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. I'm sure. also thinking of the Phantom, the Shadow, as well. the Shadow with Wait, who Alec Baldwin. That? Alec Baldwin, that's yeah, right. yeah. Everyone was like, "Oh yeah, what what everyone liked about <laughs> Batman was Art Deco sets. Yep, that's what we need. Yep. <laughs> and really intense camera angles, <laughs> lots of canted angles. Oh Holy yeah, shit. oh man, Joel Schumacher was all over that. Oof. Oh yeah. yeah. Let me not. Let me not. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll go on a tirade. Are we getting into this? Yeah, dude. Let's do it. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Goat Season. We are so happy to have you with us. This is a podcast about the greatest individual seasons of television of all time, their most memorable episodes, and their creative teams both in front of and behind the camera. I'm Phil Mitchell, and along with me is my co-host, Mr. Alex Sinesi. Dude, good to see you. Good to see you, man. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been good. Yeah. (laughs) 
we're we're in a weird mood today. We're in a weird listeners. space. I don't today. know what to tell you. I don't know There's what just it is. It's a strange vibe. Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. Something vibrating in the air. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's hard to say. It's it's just got it's yeah. The just the the vibe is off today. I don't know what it is. It's uh, it, I don't know if it's the the moon, the phase of the moon, whatever it oh, may could be. be. It could be. We just had a full moon, and also like we have this uh, winter storm. I think you just had the winter storm, and yes. mine is coming. So we have like barometric pressure changes mm-hmm. which i feel like always fuck with me oh, you know? just yeah so. like today i just want to like you know crawl into bed curl up on the sofa yeah. not yeah. do much drink some tea get, get a nice big fluffy blanket and, mm-hmm. yeah watch some mindless tv oh yeah i'm watching a bunch of seinfeld right now oh, i'm just like crushing seasons of Seinfeld. you are dude. really trying to make sure that you do not lose at name that episode. That's really that's, what this is. That's the only reason. That's the only and the only why. way to ensure my victory yeah, really is, is to watch every TV show ever, ever made. made. Oh my god. Oh. I know. It's a, a sad trap that I've laid for myself here. So today we are going to be talking about two more episodes of the first season of Lost entitled In Translation and The Numbers. Which mm-hmm. are a gen-centric episode. Just numbers. Just numbers. Drop the D, it's cleaner. Oh, okay, yeah. thank you. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> a gen-centric episode and uh, a Hurley uh, favorite, I-, I would say. A great episode, I think, uh, involving Hurley. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I-, I like both of these episodes. I know. That's that's the problem. I'm starting to worry that we're becoming a Lost Complainer podcast because I get to two really good episodes of the show that just work, that are tight, that feel good, mm-hmm. and I'm like... Yeah. Yep. Good. <laughs> Check mark. I am, I am satisfied. A plus. Yes. <laughs> oh wait. We gotta talk right. about this. <laughs> Have we lost our critical right. faculties? Oh my god. Oh boy. Nah, nah, nah. nah, nah. nah. No, this is nah. just a these are these are good, good episodes. episodes of Lost. Yeah. And I think this is one of and I think in both situations, in both episodes, the writing is up to par with the performances given. Again, you and I have talked about how the, sometimes that feels a little bit uneven over the course of the season, but this feels like two episodes where the material fits the character very, very well. Yeah, definitely. And they also feel like the writers kind of doing cleanup on their own work across both these episodes in positive ways, because you have these plot lines that are really tying up both the characters of Jin and Hurley both explicating on them and also developing them and solving some potential issues, one would say, especially with Jin. And also all of the beach plot lines feel like they're really kind of tying together all of the threads in preparation for the end game of this season. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's starting to really feel solid in this way. I thought yeah. um, episode 17 in translation was a particularly nimble piece of writing. And the reason being is just because I thought it was cool to see everything that we saw in episode three. Was episode no episode four? Actually, four? episode six. Six. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah you're yeah. right. Episode six. Man, I'm getting them all mixed up. Yeah. So I thought it was really great to see the flip side of episode six, where we just get to see the entire. It's the same story, the same time period, just told from Jen's perspective. Um, and I think it makes Jen obviously like a, a more sympathetic character. It really does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think the reason that you're getting them crossed in your mind is because you're thinking of the podcast apps po- yeah. where we yes. pair them up together. And I wonder if from now on in our brains, we're always going to pair the episodes that we 
recorded together. Clearly. You know, if they're just going to be, like, conjoined for all time mm-hmm. in our heads. Absolutely. Because, like, we're considering doing another show after this, and the pitch that I had is that I wanted to cover the episodes as they were organized on DVD mm-hmm. when the DVDs of them were oh, released. Yeah, that's right. Because that's just how they have been organized right. in my brain right. forever. <laughs> it's weird how that happens with TV. It's like... It these days, it's always just a whole season. It's just one sort of, like, chunk. Yeah. And all the episodes within it become, like, an amorphous blob. Yeah. And you more remember moments. But uh, back then, I feel like, yeah, the physical media could really, like, organize a series yep. in your head. Mm-hmm. With The X-Files, too, The X-Files was really the first show that I ever watched on physical media. I was, like, collecting the VHS tapes mm-hmm. back in the day. Wow. And the VHS tapes would always be two episodes oh that's yeah because like that's all they could really fit on a tape oh, right, back in the day right. so you would end up buying these 20 dollars vhs's that only had two, two episodes 40 on minute wow. episodes of television on them at a time and i was obsessed oh man they came with these <laughs> sweet art cards inside of them too they were like three by five cards with these really cool abstract paintings of the most gruesome image from the episodes essentially sweet. they were dope but uh, yeah, so a bunch of X Files episodes also are always like stuck together in my mind because yeah. the VHS. Oh, that's so releases. crazy! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> nobody cares about this. What am I doing? What am I talking about here? This is ridiculous. Uh, this is my nusha. Oh my god! So episode seventeen, which is in translation again, is a Gen focused episode. It is basically aimed at catching up viewers on the progression of the connections between the characters. Um, which I thought was really interesting as well. So there's a couple of different things that happen in this episode. We know that Michael decides to build a raft. Um, He's still having trouble connecting with Walt. Son, she's confiding in Kate, and that uh, relationship is developing. And Saeed and Shannon, that's getting getting a little spicy, right? Mm -hmm. Very spicy. The heat is on. The heat is on between these two. I I don't think I fully caught on my first watch, what Shannon was referring oh, to you didn't. here. Oh, okay, mm. yeah. She she just goes right for it. Let's hold on to some of these ropes and see what happens. I don't know, man. I mean, maybe it's just the internet since then has so, like, broken my brain with all of the, like, fetish material that's just, like, that just intrudes into perfectly normal forums and reddits and things like that but it's just yeah you hear that shit now and you're like yeah. you know what she's into <laughs> you're just reorganizing the bdsm chart in your head immediately it's like oh rope bunny is at like 90 percent. okay oh boy yeah she's into rigging what can we say <sighs> shannon and saeed uh, god bless the both of them i wouldn't have called that honestly wouldn't have i mean that. so <sighs> do we want to talk about them how do we feel about them as a couple sure yeah okay i i do we believe it? I don't know, I don't. man. Saeed yeah. seems like he is, he just seems like he's way more into cerebral, brainy women. Mm-hmm. Brave women, too. Not to say that Shannon doesn't have any of these qualities, but you got to dig a little bit to see if Shannon has any of these qualities. But that's the funny thing, too, is like, watching her now, Maggie Grace actually is very smart in the way that she approaches every moment on this show you can really see i think the intellect of the actor underneath the character where she's not really allowed to play that and yeah it is weird you're wondering what the attraction is because the way i guess i guess this is the thing the way that it's written is that this is a more sort of 
intense personal connection with like a long mm -hmm. courtship and flirting Mm -hmm. where they're realizing how much they connect to each other, where mm -hmm. you think if these two people got together, it would more be purely physical attraction first. And maybe right. that's happening, and since it's a network show, they just can't show it, that these two I have been so. like banging it out for a while now. But it feels like it would be physical chemistry more, whereas it yes. seems like it's more of this almost like high school crush type thing where the two of them are mm -hmm. slowly being like, oh, we have so much in common. Jeez, mm -hmm. you know, let's keep yeah. talking this out, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like Saeed is like the man who sees her inner worth, yeah. sees how valuable she is, and it's right. just, it's very much, it's, yeah. A, it's uh, a little tough to buy. It I is, feel you. yeah. And I, actually, I, I'm wrong. Unless they're being really coy and weird about it, they have not been physical They've because not. in this episode, Shannon walks up and kisses him and he's very much kind of taken off guard by it. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Unless they've just been, you know, unless it's just been like some hot and heavy, like real. Okay. Like, you okay. Know, all right. Animal no, we know fucking we're, okay. where they're no, not no, kissing no, at all. We're not. No. There are no kisses. Do whatever. It all could right. Be we're that, moving on. Know? We're moving on. Okay. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just building just, this scenario really in my are. head. Now. All right. Just got to shut this down. <laughs> So yeah, anyway, tension, no, no from the front, mm, no, anyway, not a, you, know. you know what, we'll just shut it down, okay, so anyway, uh, yeah, tensions between Sun and Jen uh, publicly come to a head, and when Michael intervenes, uh, Sun rebuffs him with a slap to the face, He's so betrayed by that moment. Yeah, he is. I, I, but you know what, His acting's though? really interesting. All right, but there. okay. So this is the thing I have about that moment, which is yeah. I don't think it works. Okay. He is betrayed, yeah. but I don't think it works because yeah. they took out right. the subplot of Michael and Son in earlier episodes. And so when this moment happens, it doesn't really do anything for you me. You really feel the missing romantic connection. And it almost... Yep at this point, makes you wonder, oh, did he have a crush on her mm -hmm. that was never expressed at all? Mm -hmm. Because that's how he plays it. Yeah. He plays it with those missing beats. I th I thought it was really weird that they left that moment in. Yeah. Knowing... Especially the way he plays it. Yeah, yeah. He plays it, it real He plays it very well. Hurt. Like, oh my God, I thought yeah. we like, had a connection and he's very like wounded by it. But So I don't know why they decided to take out the romance between those two characters or their flirtation between the two of them and then leave this moment in. They Thinking about it now, it's like they kind of could have left it in, right? I think so. Yeah. I think so. I mean, Michael is like a nice, he's a nice guy. He's, you know, he's trying to be a good dad. Like, you know, he's got some attractive qualities. I could see yeah. why anyone yeah. would be sort of drawn to him, um, especially if you're dealing with, you know, a, a relationship or, you know, a partner who is kind of, he's cold. And that's what Jin is. That's how he comes off in the first few episodes. So I could see why that would work. It just, I don't know why they took it out. Yeah, you, she's feeling alienated from her partner and she sees someone over here who is a caretaker who is protecting their child and it's like immediately that makes sense yep absolutely so i get why they wrote it in in the first place but it is interesting because yeah in cutting it what it really does is it gives Jin a little more sympathy which i know is the it reason does. they did it right but it really kind of takes a lot of sympathy away from michael is right. what i was noticing right like, his reaction to the slap now, without that context, 
he kind of seems like a nutcase. He am I does. Right? He does. Yeah. It's like, dude, what are you doing? You <laughs> really so shouldn't be intervening. Triggered by it. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's it does not look cool. Yeah. No, it doesn't. He has no chill now, and it no. makes it feel like he's like possessive over this woman because he mm-hmm. saw her boobs once. You know, it's weird. It's weird. Yeah, that's an instance now. You know, I, in the past, I had sort of defended the lost writers in their treatment of Michael, saying that it was sort of unintentional that they botched his storyline a little bit that led mm-hmm. to like Perrineau's dissatisfaction for, with the role but like looking at this episode again now I'm kind of like uh, they kind of sacrificed his character here yes yes they like weighed him against Sun and Jin and mm-hmm. said we're gonna let Michael uh, Take the fall. go a well, little bit yeah, yeah. and I, from what I understand just reading I think we talked about this before was Sun and Jin were fairly they're popular and I think like well-liked characters and so I think that's the reason why the writers might have like steered away from that particular storyline but well Daniel Day Kim is just so handsome I and you know. see him in a suit in these I flashbacks know. in the first uh. one and this one there's there's a lot here this guy's intriguing instantly and ironically I think they were planning do you think they had planned on having him die as son and Michael sort of Mm. developed in a relationship. Because I'm like, I don't see where else the character could go aside from becoming fully villainous, fully an obstacle. And then it's like, what do you do with him after a certain point? Do you just like kill him off? Especially if he's not in any way a focal character, which I don't think they planned on him being. He was more of a danger that son had along with her. And so I wonder if that was part of some initial plan there. And then as they saw, like, oh, no, you know, the funny thing is by holding Jin back, by not explaining shit with him as much, they've made him way more intriguing. Way more mysterious. And ironically, also people are like, oh, well, he's this gangster. Maybe he's kind of cool. I don't know. You know, like people's sympathy is always, always open for a man who commits violence on screen. You know, people are always like, wait, can I give him a chance? Oh, we've seen this before. He's covered in blood here. Like, can I can I sympathize? We watch with the this Sopranos. Guy? We know what you know? happens. Yeah. It's a yes. Exactly. I was just having a conversation with Josh and Maria last night, and they were both talking about how James Gandolfini is perhaps the most sexually magnetic man who has ever lived. I beg to differ. Which is wild, but it's like I can't I actually can't fully disagree because the thing is the man is not physically attractive in any way. This is mm. what Maria was saying, is she's like she could have looked at a million still images of James Gandolfini and been like, no, there's nothing attractive about this person. And as soon as you see him in motion, you're like, oh, I get the magnetism. I get the charisma. <laughs> it's all like just supernaturally like flowing out of this. Thing. <sighs> that was a that was a weird it, choice of words. You <laughs> know what? Saying. Yeah. You, I didn't yeah, need to use flowing as the verb That's a little there. sus, my guy. That all was... right. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Anyway. So, yeah. So we've got the raft. Michael's building it. And then it mysteriously burns. So there's an arsonist also on the island. So we got to worry about that now. Jen is suspected as being the culprit. Sawyer decides to kidnap him and deliver some island justice, which is just vigilante justice because it's Sawyer. And that's what he does. And then the flashback, which again is the mirror image of House of the Rising Sun. We got to see Jin marrying Sun um, without the attendance of anyone um, in his immediate family. And he's talking about how his father passed away. That's the reason why he is basically alone at the wedding. He takes on the role of the heavy within his father-in-law's organization, which distances him from Sun. And it traps him, like you said, Alex, in uh, mob-style violence, um, which 
I thought they did a really good job showing the fact that he deplores this. He does not like the fact that he is doing this. Um, and that's a part of his character that we didn't get to see in the earlier episode. Yeah, and also that he didn't volunteer for that no, position he didn't. at all. That no. he very unintentionally fell into it. And now he's trapped. He's trapped, yeah. Which is so interesting because it changes the end of episode six. So yeah. Sun was going to, you know, to leave him. But I think you really you realize that Jen also wanted an escape of his own. And I don't think that that's something that they really highlighted in episode six. Oh, he really wanted to leave too. He wanted a fresh start. And that was what he was hoping for um, as they're boarding the plane. They didn't hint at it, but it it's so cool how this flashback is so compact and interlocks with a flashback we already had, as opposed to some of the other flashbacks that feel very like flabby and unnecessary and sort of cover this big thing in a person's Mm -hmm. life and yet you feel like they don't tell you very much about them this flashback tells you so much and yet it fits so snugly into the continuity that we already have very like you said very nimble writing it's it's very elegant um and so basically the episode it comes to a close where sun in order to save jen's life uh, she reveals that she speaks english the fallout is that she loses the trust of the fellow survivors that are on the island it estranges or puts some more distance between herself and jen and then there are two twists at the end one being that Walt was the person who burned the raft. I'm not sure if I buy that. I've got questions around that. Because, I mean, kids love video games, and they don't want to be stuck on an island without their games. Uh, They're in 64. We know what's going on. He doesn't even have a DS Lite out of the plane. Are you kidding me? No, this guy wants to play video games. Don't give me any of that. Um, And then the second big twist is the fact that we recognize the actual sacrifice that Jen has made for so many years in courting and then marrying Son, which is... He chose to give up his former life as a working class citizen, as someone from a working class family, um, when we see his father who actually is alive. That's kind of heartbreaking. Yeah. It's kind of heartbreaking that this guy uh, was so ashamed of where he came from that he just chose to hide it completely. And so the episode ends with Jen choosing to leave Sun, um, leave the caves, and reside on the beach. Good episode. Yeah, yeah. It hits hard the idea that he sacrificed the connection with his family for a social status mm-hmm. upgrade and and also, you know, to further his career. That sort of family estrangement instantly makes him a lot more sympathetic. Something that I really love about this episode, though, is that it enriches his character, it deepens his character, it makes him more sympathetic, but it doesn't totally excuse all of his weird, possessive, bad behavior exactly. on the island. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about this. I wonder about this because just looking at it as a network show where the network is so obsessed with mm-hmm. characters being likable and easily understandable and things like that, I wonder if, ironically, the writers wrote themselves into a corner by writing a character who they meant to be purely villainous and then realizing there was stuff to like about him and then they doubled back and they deepen his character, but they don't take away the unlikable stuff because they can't because it's in there. there. The way that he's acted on the island has been pretty appalling, but they've given you at least motivation for it so that now you have this sort of uneasy feeling of understanding a character but still knowing that he has some 
fucked up tendencies. Yeah, and absolutely. that's so good. That's such a good tension. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's the thing. It's like already Jin is getting this huge upgrade to where he's this dynamic character full of contradictions and both like dangerous elements to him and tender elements. You know, he's really getting like a Sawyer style makeover. Absolutely. Here as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it works so well. It does. It works so well. Cause you, you look at him at the end of this episode and you're like, Oh, this dude is so bitter. Yes. He's so bitter about what has happened to him, what has happened to him as a person and what has happened to his life because he loved this woman and it's curdled his love for her into something really toxic pretty monstrous he really resents her so much through no fault of her own because of what she's done to him and you know it kind of makes you double back too and be like well son has to know something about what her something about her dad she has to know something about the effect that he has on people you know so suddenly yeah and she's not so much the innocent anymore but also you know you don't blame her for the way that Jin treats her or anything you're just no no like, not at all but you see more sort of where he's coming from and it's very satisfying i mean the episode wouldn't be what it is without the great ddk right oh, he fucking rules dude he's awesome yeah he's awesome so charismatic interesting guy he was somebody who i don't know about you i'd seen him a bunch before lost and he was super familiar to me but never in a leading role, really. And that was the thing. He showed up on so many TV shows in just, like, one-episode appearances. He was born in Busan, but uh, he grew up in, like, New York City and Pennsylvania. He went to NYU, and he got an MFA in acting there. He actually started mostly as a stage performer, which I thought was interesting. That's so cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always respect that. You know, it's like you put the work in before Mm -hmm. you transitioned into the the movie and the TV acting. But yeah, but he showed up on a bunch of stuff. He showed up on like Star Trek Voyager and Seinfeld, ER, Charmed, The Shield. The Shield was the one that he definitely popped in for. When was that? I cannot remember. He was in season three. He was in that episode involving Korean assassins where... um, there were these like assassins on motorcycles. I vaguely remember this. He was like the guy who was part of the he was part of like a local Korean community outreach program. Okay. But okay. he was also informing the assassins. Okay. Was okay. the thing. Yeah. He was really good on that episode. I mean, everybody on the shield popped. It's so funny to look back on it and be like God, there were so many famous people on that sure before was. they blew yeah. up. Mm-hmm. Like Kristen Bell is the other one I always think of. Like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's just like wow. Yeah. Oh, and so he had uh, recurring roles on Twenty Four and Angel, and then like the big regular part that he had was on this show called Crusade, which was this Babylon Five spinoff. Okay. Um, and I thought. What happened with this was kind of interesting. I never really followed Babylon 5. I couldn't get past how it looked like everyone was trapped in a CD-ROM game (laughs) because it was like early CGI, but there was so much CGI. (laughs) Everyone's just standing around like textureless, blocky CGI in almost every shot. And you're like, what is this? (laughs) These people are like infected with Encarta or something, you know? (laughs) Oh, Encarta. I miss it. So, but the funny thing about it was uh, J. Michael Straczynski, the mastermind behind uh, Babylon 5, had this whole other spinoff show planned in uh, Crusade, and he was like, I got a whole, like, five-year arc for it, and TNT 
had already had a contract with him to produce a full season of this show before it started. And then TNT kind of like crunched the numbers and they were like, huh, people who watch Babylon 5 don't actually watch TNT. Right. (laughs) People who watch TNT are not watching fucking Babylon 5. Right. And I think they just realized we got a we got a problem here. We got an audience conflict going on. So what they did was they they filled the episode order for Crusade, but canceled it before it ever came out, and they promoted it as a limited series instead. Oh, okay. Which, what a shady move. It's funny how it's like limited series is such a prestige promise of a show now now where it's like, oh, we're making something handcrafted. We're not going to do multiple seasons. And oftentimes they like do anyway, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, I'm thinking like the White Lotus, you know, oh, yeah. premiered as a limited series, and now they're like, "Oh, you like season that? Two. Oh, well, we got season two on the way in just a year." Yep. It's like, okay, so this is just a series now. Yep, it is, but this is the opposite, where they were like, "Oh no, fuck this thing! It's only going to be a limited series." But hey, we could say that, you know, it's like, hey, hey, this thing's got a beginning and an end. I mean, the end is when we literally like cut funding and had them shut off all the cameras. But hey, it's limited. This series, <laughs> we have limited this series exactly (laughs) uh so i feel bad for him because that was like his first like regular role on a tv show and uh that was its fate okay but um shortly after that he was cast as uh jin on lost and he had to quickly relearn korean because he hadn't really spoken Mm. it at all since since his childhood so i imagine that was quite a, a a huge challenge there Yunjin Kim helped him on set with his pronunciation, but my understanding is that Korean speakers watching the show are still like, Jin sounds weird. Really? You know, okay, he, he has wow. a very American accent sure. and his pronunciation isn't great, but I mean, well, what can you what do? What do you expect? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, while I sympathize with that, I think they found such a charismatic actor. Of course. And, you know, they rolled the dice that, hey, people aren't going to pick up on that subtlety in the U.S., right. so, you know, we'll go with it. I mean, that's the case for any actor that you're going to see um, who's not speaking in their, their native tongue, right? Like Benedict Cumberbatch, dude is not particularly great at American accents. He always sounds a little bit off or that he's doing a little bit extra. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or I think about um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is this funny case of a movie that is so acclaimed that so many people think of as a classic, except in China. Yep, yep. In mainland China, that movie was very unpopular, and it's because... It was a Taiwanese production that pulled people from all sorts of different regions. You had Taiwanese actors, Hong Kong actors, mainland China actors. And so they say everyone sounds ridiculous yep. in that movie. Yep. Chow Yun-Fat is showing up in this medieval setting with like a Brooklyn <laughs> accent, essentially. <laughs> yeah, he's, it's a totally like a Harvey Keitel in Last Temptation of Christ so type awesome. effect. What if he just showed up speaking English? With a Brooklyn right. accent. Like, he just didn't even bother. Anyway, okay. All right, I'm or, done. Or they're just, like, building up his character, and then he just shows up in, like, a cowboy hat, right. and he's talking in a real Western drawl. With a cigar. <laughs> Everyone's like, what is this? And spurs on his boots. And meanwhile, we're like, give it all the Oscars. This is a sensitive masterpiece, and we have no idea. It's pretty funny. It's so culturally intricate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. So, um... 
Daniel Dakim blew up on Lost. Then after that, he was a series regular on Hawaii Five-0, which also featured Terry O'Quinn and Jorge Garcia as like major guest stars on it. I think a bunch of them were like, oh, another network show in Hawaii? Sign me the fuck up. Right. <laughs> and he made his like directorial debut in the first, fifth season of that show. But then something happened, a real, real bad look for CBS, which was that both he and Grace Park, who were integral parts of the team on this show had a salary dispute where they were like we want to be paid the same amount as the leads who were scott o'laughlin and uh scott Kahn. you know uh james, james Kahn's Kahn's son. son yeah but i mean like a couple of fucking like tomato can yeah. white boys who nobody is like crossing the street to see on top of a marquee i mean come the fuck on right. here and uh cbs refused wow. so they both quit the show Oof. And yeah after season seven they they uh both left wow. and uh it's just it's just so glaring where it's yeah. like all of the people of color they refuse to give equal pay and they all depart at the same mm -hmm. time so uh yeah nice nice work cbs yeah. but um Boo. actually before that during his time on hawaii 50 he uh formed his own production company which is called 3ad oh that's so cool yeah so the thing about him is uh he took this korean show called the good doctor and he adapted it to the U.S. And essentially, like, CBS didn't want to, like, do a pilot or anything. So he got David Shore, who did uh, House, mm -hmm. who was the showrunner on House MD, mm -hmm. attached to it. Brought it back to them. They greenlit it after that, because I guess they wouldn't greenlit it, light it just on Daniel Day Kim's recommendation. But uh, they picked it up, and it was, like, the number one yeah. rated new drama of its year. It was yeah. a huge, a huge fucking hit. hit. Freddie Highmore? Yeah. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Freddie Highmore. Uh, he got a Golden Globe nomination for that. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that was Daniel Day Kim's show. Oh, that's fantastic. Good for him. Yeah. And then, like, even after that, CBS is fucking around with him about this, like, salary dispute. So he leaves, and now 3AD has its um, development deal with Amazon. Okay. I, I haven't heard about any shows. He's produced a few movies, but he hasn't had, like, a big new series pickup for Amazon. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm sure that's a much better place for him. I hope, long yeah. Especially considering, like, CBS's demographic. Yes. So... Pretty cool, pretty cool to see. I mean, talk about like a renaissance man Absolutely. who's just like expanding into every aspect of television production and clearly knows his shit mm -hmm. can like make a hit. He knows what he's doing. Yeah. And it's just that immediately also made me like, okay, so I'm never going to watch this fucking Hawaii Five O show. Yeah. Not that I had any particular inclination. But to. now we definitely hate it. Yeah. The fact that it had these two great actors on it. I love yes. Grace Park. Too. She's I great. Mean, great on Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. So good on BSG. And just like seven seasons in when these two are like an integral part of the main story and the main like character dynamic, they just chopped both of them. I'm like, you know what? fucking forget this show man I know. like I know. why would i ever waste my time watching this and it went for like three more seasons after that dude <laughs> so, it was a freaking money maker yeah, man 10 was. seasons yeah, dude it was i remember that i think it basically got like axed just because of like the pandemic oh, you know the, the ratings okay. were going down and the rising cost of it they were just like all right we'll just like end okay, up in season okay. 10 just a solid 10 course, season run you know. for that shit just that. <laughs> Sorry, no, I was, just gonna, you know, I wasn't going to ask anything. I was just thinking, like, th this episode, I thought, it sort of returned to having some, some interesting camera work. Because I, this is the thing with Lost. Like, mm -hmm. I, there is no, there's no visual language here like there is with other television shows. And so, I mean, it, again, 
I think the people that they've brought on to direct these episodes, like, just don't take advantage of the scenery and the locale and able to use that as, to use it to inform either the mood or just the tone of the show. Um, And so I think this was, like, one of the first times where I watched it. I thought, oh, okay, like, there's some good moments here. There's some good shots here. I'm specifically thinking about um, the wides on Sun when she is just kind of by herself, isolated, with the mountains and the ocean in the background. And there's just like that sense of, yeah, yeah her loneliness and at, and at the same time, a certain amount of freedom that she has in being alone and not having Jin next to her and how there's feelings of anguish, yeah. but then also relief for the character. And I thought that that was great oh, yeah. um, towards the end of the episode. The way that she metaphorically casts him off at the end is so great. And that montage with all those wides is beautiful. I'm going to call you out a little bit, though, dude, because you're always like, you know, they really they don't do any interesting shots on this episode. And that's always your preface to talking about interesting shots. Well, that's the thing. Okay, maybe I do. Maybe I do. If that might be the case, but this is, I think there, there are other shows that have done a better job creating a, a visual language or just taking advantage of what you can do with the camera. And this is not one of those shows. I think there wasn't a ton of time for really strong stylization. Right. That's how I'll put it. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, they have this incredible locale in Hawaii and this amazing setting early on in this broken plane. And they were shooting so fast otherwise that it's like you don't get a lot of like stylized camera language. Uh, They're not constantly coming up with really unusual sorts of shots that we're more used to now and and really like intricate sort of... um, composition and framing of characters so I'm, I'm with you there but i mean i think they do take advantage of the natural beauty pretty well on the show great. And the montage at the end of this episode is such a good example of it yunjun kim looks stunning and like the beach is incredible and do that last moment all right this is the hurley really, the, uh, that yeah. is so mm-hmm. brilliant dude where hurley's walkman runs out of batteries yes. it's at once such a relatable thing that moment of like god damn it i was expecting to have some comforting music to just like settle into exactly yep. some comforting like you know oh yeah just have my disturbed cd running all day in junior high and then boom i get to my first period and the fucking no. batteries die <laughs> No one understands me. What am I going to do? Life isn't just. I can only get through disc one of melancholy and the infinite sadness. (laughs) Well, the rest of my day is just fucked now, you know? It's so so relatable to someone who actually, like, had a Walkman and a CD wallet in high school going around. But at the same time, it's also just such a brilliant... It's such a brilliant subversion of the episode ending musical montage it's so well done it's so smart it makes me think of how at this time especially uh network tv was just lousy with episode ending montages especially like medical dramas like Grey's Anatomy House they just fucking loved to grab whatever that hot new indie single was and put that over a shot of everybody crying give me some Coldplay yeah exactly just like pull all the sound out of this shot or just shoot it MOS fuck it we know nobody's having dialogue in this scene and yeah we're gonna put like the antlers over it or whatever get some Sufjan in here man get those tear ducts working bro you know I feel like no see 
See, I think actually the song mm. around that time was uh, Coldplay's Fix You. That was the song. Oh, yeah, sure. Early aughts. Yeah, that, that was the song. Coldplay was just, ugh. Man, yeah, all over that stuff. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it's so, it's so atmospheric and emotional. So <laughs> What's he melancholy. singing about, though? These lyrics make no sense at all. <laughs> Chris Martin's like, fuck if I know. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I just, I love this as a subversion of that network trope. I think it's just one of the great episode-ending musical montages of all time, honestly, because of the way that it ends. I mean, it's great up until that point, and then that just puts it. Over the Over top. Over the top. Man. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree with you on that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Good episode. And I think it's followed by, I think it leads into another solid episode, which is uh, The Numbers, which... (sighs) A good episode, very tense, well-written, I think well-directed, and well-acted. I think, in the grand scheme of things, it's just another island mystery. It's just another mystery box. Oh, well, that's just your post-lost bitterness coming out. At the time, this was the shit, man. This was the shit. It was, man. It was, but, like, come on. Like, if you're thinking back on it... I know, the numbers... You're just kind of, like, the numbers You can roll your eyes at it now, but... At the time, man. Ugh. Yes. When the numbers showed up on that hatch. On the hatch, yes. It like it gave me the chills. Yeah. Yeah. That was a everybody stands up yes. yelling at the screen end of an episode yes. moment, mm-hmm. dude. Mm-hmm. Your brain is leaking out of your ears. It's just that amazing. It really yeah. is. It was insane. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, in the numbers, we've got Lost focusing on multimillionaire. Yes. Hugo Hurley Reyes. Yeah, no one knows this. This man is a millionaire, and I love that about it's him. It's so great. He's so chill about it. It's so good. Oh, boy. Yeah. So we've got Saeed and Shannon. They're continuing their romance. Michael and Jen have come to a, a um, they're parlayed. They've come to a truce, a, an agreement, and they're working on rebuilding the raft. And Locke bonds with Claire. Hurley recognizes a familiar set of numbers among the notes that Saeed has that are Rousseau's original notes, Um, and he sets off into the jungle to explore and find her in order to uh, seek an explanation because he has seen these numbers before, um, and he's wondering why why they're popping up again. In the flashback, we learn that he used these specific numbers to win the lottery and as soon as he wins the lottery, he suffers from uh, the lottery curse, right? In a severe form. 
of the lottery curse, which is people are dying, people are um, getting divorced, losing their spouses, breaking their ankles, houses are on fire. It's terrifying. People are losing their minds. Um, and so he ends up reconnecting with a, I guess it's like an acquaintance at a psychiatric hospital where he had actually been an inpatient at some point in the past. And so he asks about the numbers. Um, I believe the person who he's talking to, what's that guy's name? Is it Lenny? Uh, yeah. It's Lenny. Yeah, yeah Lenny. it's Lenny. And he asks Lenny if the numbers are cursed. He gets an eerie warning from Lenny um, and then heads to Sydney, Australia to speak with the person who gave Lenny the numbers, whose name is Sam Toomey. Toomey has already passed away. He has already committed suicide just out of despair and worry that if he stays alive, with the knowledge of the numbers, it will continue to harm other people around him. After Toomey's widow explains this, Hurley decides that he is going to, I guess at that point, does he decide that he's just going to hop on a plane and like never go back to see anyone that he loves or cares about? Is that the sense that you got? Oh, I I wasn't sure, actually. Yeah, I couldn't tell. Um, But I thought that's sort of what he decided, which is like, these numbers are cursed. I used them. And people around me are going to suffer because I use them. So, like, let me just hop on a plane and just, like, go somewhere where I can't be found or can't be discovered. I don't know. I could be completely wrong about that. Anyway, in the uh, current timeline, Hurley, he finds Rousseau. And you know what? She validates his experience. Even though she is completely bonkers, she comes out of that fog and she says, you know what, Hurley? You're absolutely right. And you shouldn't be ashamed of how you're feeling. It's a great moment. It's a tender moment. Yeah, it's a great moment of her being like, hmm, feelings of overwhelming paranoia. Yeah, I'll co-sign that. Yeah. You know? I will co-sign on. Let me hop on that, right. right? Oh, it's so good. You can tell she doesn't even really believe in curses, but she's just like, yeah, curse. Sure, yeah. why not? <laughs> I just rigged my old apartment to explode for no reason. I know. Oh, boy. Which doesn't make a lot of sense, but also really fits in with her character. It does. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course she did. Yeah, that woman was just like, no one is going to take me alive. Let me blow this place up. She is a gangster, man. Oof. Do, you, do we want her on the wise council, though? Ooh, no, I don't think so. I think... <laughs> I think she she's got to be she's got to be the shadowy enforcer. She's got to be the fixer. Okay, good point. Bring good in, point. And she's a very specific set of rules for how she can be deployed. Right. Okay. Because <laughs> just imagine her. I mean, I always think of that moment in the finale where she walks out on the beach with that giant fucking sniper rifle. Yeah. And it's just like this is not a sight that anyone is welcoming or prepared for. No, not at all. But at the same time, if you deployed it. In a tactful way, if you just mm-hmm. deployed it every now and then, mm-hmm. yeah, it really reinforces the power of your so. counsel. Yeah, you're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah, she is definitely. Um, she she's fiery. She's definitely the equivalent of like a shotgun blast. Yeah, but yeah, she's great. Love Mia Furlan. So the episode ends with Hurley accepting that he doesn't have to be afraid of his baggage and his mental health. Um, and as Alex, as you pointed out, the cursed numbers are everywhere, even etched into the door of the hatch. Man. Yeah, you don't even see it, but you imagine he, like, picked up his ticket for his flight mm-hmm. back, and it was flight 815, yes. and he's just like, fucking a course. And then, and it, then crashes, it crashes, and again, he's just like, yeah, uh-huh, oh, sure. Man. Do you think he noticed that? Oh, of course he did, dude. Okay, he, of course okay, he noticed yeah. and was just like, fuck it, you yep. know? Mm-hmm. Like, come on. It's so great. It so, uh, this was the final flashback for a major character that had not been revealed up until this point. And oh. I think that 
says a lot because they really waited with Hurley and gave him the perfect backstory. Yeah. It's so good. It's really good. It informs his character so much. The idea of how he's this guy who is just going to continue to glide through life while Wiley E. Coyote-style doom comes for anyone in his orbit. Mm -hmm. And he's just gotten to the point where he's like... He's rolling with all of these punches around him. He's expecting it. He's used to it. He's just going to fall back on his general positivity and humor. But it goes so much deeper than you thought before. He's so unflappable, and you know why at this point. It's just pitched the perfect amount funny but also tragic in his flashback that it it really works for him it's not like the episode goes full-on into like a comedy Uh, some of the later hurley episodes are very surreal and comedic and i think this one hits just the right tone you know what it's so funny because i was watching this episode and it reminded me of a coen brothers movie like there's just enough there to make you think like oh like the coen brothers could have had their hand in this specific episode there's a certain amount of like haplessness in Hurley's character and a certain amount of just like a a character, a person being resigned to their fate and being unable to escape it that I feel is very, it's a common thread in like other Coen brothers films. Yeah. It's a very, a serious. Oh, very much so. Yeah. So I I love, I I liked seeing this on the rewatch. Yeah. It feeds into that Coen brothers theme too of the, uh, the brutality of fate. Mm Mm-hmm. It's like fate is coming and it is doom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? it's not. You're not going like to like it. It is a giant stamp that has doom <laughs> on it. Jorge Garcia. Yeah. What do you think about his performance? Incredible. Yeah. So fucking good. It's so good too because he does something really smart in this episode. I thought where he first is very like low key and naturalistic, and it's almost to that point where you're like. Is he even acting or is he just kind of mm-hmm. in this scene? He's he's just so casual about it that then when he gets emotional at the end, it hits yep. so much harder. Because you mm-hmm. get that reveal of that depth when he is like tearful mm-hmm. with Russo where he's like, somebody finally believes me. That is such a weight of loneliness off my shoulders and then immediately to be like slapped down again by Charlie, who is just being kind of an asshole in this. Yeah, episode. he really is. I'm he is. a little surprised by how intolerant he is to these ideas. But it it also just goes to show, I mean, that's Hurley. His backstory is so out there that he can't reveal it to anybody. Or even if he does, no one will believe it's him. like, yeah, it's like American Psycho. This confession meant nothing. So it's funny. So there's a couple of things. One it now makes the callbacks. There's some now callbacks that make more sense, which are Walt beating Hurley. I forget at what, I don't know if it was checkers or the game of go and Walt saying, I think, was it right? backgammon? Okay. It might've been that, but I, anyway, it's, you know, Walt saying, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like Hurley owes me like 80 something million dollars. And it's like a ha ha moment. And then you realize, Oh wait, that's actually true. And then I don't know. Did you notice? And it's sad too. Cause he's like, Oh yeah, I'll just bet away my hundreds of millions. Mm-hmm. Who gives a shit now? Exactly. You're never going to get that money. Never going to get the money back. And then the other, did you notice that in, in translation, Hurley is on the television? Yes. Uh, Yes. You saw that too. Winning the lottery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And in this episode, the woman who uh, is revealing the lottery ball numbers. Yeah. You know who that is? No. That's Harold Perrineau's wife. Is it really? Yeah. Yeah. That very attractive blonde lady who also was the woman who Sawyer was hooking up with in his flashback. 
Oh, yeah. Dude. Oh, She's I didn't even really catch that. Two separate that. roles Whoa, in this season. Okay. Do is she playing the same character? I don't think so. Although, I mean, honestly, who knows? Considering Lost, right, right, probably, right, right. It probably wow, all okay. ties in together. So that's interesting. So this is like the fourth, fifth intertwined story, that, or you know, characters showing up within each other's flashbacks. Then, yeah, they're really pushing the connections yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. Brittany Perrineau is her okay. name. Okay, but uh, yeah, they they really started to like tighten all the connections. I think after it worked so well in the Sawyer flashback with uh, Christian yeah, coming yeah, into yeah, the yeah. bar. Yeah. I think they were just like, oh yeah, we, we, gotta we do can this. just keep weaving all these threads together. And there's definitely a point after this where I think it became a little eye-roll worthy on the show where it's like, all right, everything is so connected. Mm -hmm. But right now it still feels really exciting. Oh, it, it does. really like continues to just deepen all these characters. It really does. I mean, so we've got Christian in the bar. We've got Sawyer showing up at the police station. When Boone Boone's is also back. at the, yeah. yep, okay, and then this other woman who is playing, we think, the same character, but possibly two different characters. Okay. Possibly two possibly different characters. Two, but I like, mean, you barely see her in the Sawyer flashback. She's literally right. like a woman in the shadows that he's hooking up with. Right. Well, the T-1000 looks on. Uh, oh, I'm boy. sorry, Robert Patrick. It's just, You're always going to be the T-1000, man. We love you, Robert. You're always going to be made out of liquid metal, in my heart at least. What if he died and people just discovered? <laughs> what if Robert Patrick passes away? I mean, God forbid, but, you know, assuming at some point that this happens and he just immediately melts into a puddle of liquid metal, I'd be like, yeah. We knew it all along. We did. <laughs> yeah, what do we know about Jorge Garcia? Oh, man. So I was looking it up. He um, he was just spending, like, many years, like, auditioning had a bunch of roles in commercials, but his first major role was uh, he was a regular in the last season of Becker, which is a, a Ted, Ted Danson, Danson sitcom, which, I mean, Ted Danson's done so much television, I just, I cannot even, like, hope to keep I up I mean, that's with the it. Matthew Weiner show, isn't it? I think Matthew Weiner worked on I think on it show. was, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah he wrote yeah. on that. Yeah, I, I'm just like, look at, I'm like, this dude's career. He's He's got like he's two or three yes. shows that I'm just never even going to mm -hmm. get to. Mm -hmm. This might be one of them. Dude has just put in work on television. Anyway, the producers of Lost spotted him in Curb Your Enthusiasm. Okay. He had a role as like a weed dealer in one okay. episode. And while they were preparing the pilot, they saw him in that and they hired him onto the show and... You know, I, I think, as we said, like, originally his character was called Red Shirt mm -hmm, in the pilot script. Mm -hmm. And then I think as soon as they had cast him, that's when they started to, like, craft this very specific role to him. Um, how can you how can you bring him onto the cast and not want this guy to stick around for a season or two or three? Like, he's just got such a distinct look, a great delivery. Uh, he's perfect. Yeah, I can't see how you would even want to just get rid of this guy after, like, an episode or two. Yeah, as soon as he starts acting, you're just like, mm -hmm. oh my god, this guy is an absolute like wealth of reaction shots, of mm -hmm. chemistry, of little moments like tying the rest of the cast together. It's so good. He's he's the glue that he really is holding is. this bamboo baby crib together. You All know? right, two things. Yeah, one is Hurley on the Wise Council. Oh, he's got to be. He's got to yeah, be. Yeah, 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 he is. He is. Yeah. I, I think he is. Two. What do we think about Locke building? this crib for claire but most specifically claire saying to him thank you for giving me something to do which i interpreted as the writers admitting 
that they have nothing for Claire to do for the remainder of the season except to give birth to a baby. Yeah, a little bit. It's funny because you wonder if it's kind of them being like, you know, like dusting off their hands and being like, yep, another problem solved. And yet it's like, you are kind of calling attention to this character has nothing to do. The lack of material for this character who's sitting here like, yep, just uh, continuing to have pieces of memories of the season so far. They don't fit together, but whatever. Still pregnant. And it's like, that's what you got going on. Yep. Huh? Mm-hmm. She's got nothing going on. Oof. Yeah. Anyway. No, no, that's that's fair. I like that whole subplot a lot, though, because they've realized now that they can have Locke do something purely altruistic, and it will just be a little bit creepy now. Oh, of course. Like, no matter what, the creepitude is just going to come through. It's so there. You can't help but wonder, like, is he using this as a way to convert her to the Church of Locke, Exactly. You can't help but wonder that. There's no menace in it. There's no, you know, him trying to proselytize or seduce her into his crazy cult. It's just purely him being a nice, very, like, handy, you know, Grandfatherly, exactly. yet, and yet, you just, you feel that there's an ulterior motive. It's kind of the same thing as in the previous episode where he has his big speech about going after the others for burning the raft. Right. Because he starts it out by saying, we all want to get off this island. We all want to get home. And that is that sugar that he needs to get everyone's attention. Mm -hmm. And you know it's not true. You know he doesn't feel that way. You know he wants to stay at this point even. And so immediately you're like clued into how he's manipulating everyone. It's really smart. Mm -hmm. It's really smart. It's great. Yeah. I love it. Man. So we've got, yeah, Jorge Garcia. Do we finish talking about him? I guess it just, okay, so like, yeah, after Becker, yeah, he was on this one episode of Curb. He gets hired onto Lost and sticks with the show through its whole run. A really fun thing, something I love, and it's just like such a sweet thing that Rivers Cuomo did, that he wrote an album that was inspired by... Jorge Garcia's character of Hurley oh, that's great. and put it out. And the cover of the album is just a random candid shot of Jorge Garcia. <laughs> it's just the cover of the CD, which I always thought was funny. And also it just feels like a nice little present of like lost is over. And dude, thank you for your service. Thank you for being this constant source of joy yeah. through this whole show. So that happened right there. And then uh, the season after that, he was cast on Alcatraz, which only lasted for a season, but, you know, is another kind of like lost adjacent J.J. Abrams produced show. And then again, you know, went on to guest star on Hawaii Five O. ended up becoming a regular on that show. So again, that was kind of the, the retirement pension scheme for a lot of these actors it was like, oh, we'll just go back and do the chill version of it for cbs and cbs is like yeah yeah cool we're just gonna like fire all of our minority (laughs) cast members though don't worry about it uh but um yeah aside from that you know he's done a little work here and there i had a quote from him where he kind of said that he was happy not taking scripts Mm -hmm. if they didn't excite him that he wanted to tell good stories and that if he didn't feel the material was there he didn't really feel the pressure to like constantly work which you know i i think is great but on the flip side also like one of the few things he's popped up in is like the happy madison movies that netflix has been putting out which just look atrocious 
But, you know, I think small role, great paycheck. Sure. Sandler got like such a lucrative deal for those. So you feel like he's he knows how to make those movies for no money mm-hmm. at all. So he can just spread around the salary to all of his friends and people who he wants to hang out with. So, you know, whatever. Yep. But um, yeah, you did that. And he uh, also hosts a podcast about monster movies. Oh, that's uh, so Kaiju awesome. Pod, oh, yeah. Which is that fucking is amazing. Great. Immediate goodwill for me. Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to hear Jorge Garcia talk about Mecha King Ghidorah and Biolanti now. <laughs> I'm all about that shit. I'm in on that. Yeah. Sign yeah, me yeah. up. Sign me up. Whew. Two good episodes. Yeah. Two really, really good episodes. And I think that they are... Like, do you? we talked last time about how we feel like things are ramping up with the return of Claire, with mm-hmm. the execution of, of Ethan... Does this feel like it's still headed in the right direction? With the numbers, I'd say yes. It feels like things are moving faster and that, you know, there's this tension that's sort of brewing. Yeah, and it's funny, dude. You think about the raft and the hatch, and these are elements that they have seeded in that are sitting here and sort of telling us what the shape of the season finale is going to be, and yet they never feel like a very... um sort of they never feel like this ramp up that is really intense and forward moving it's more like uh, just this little hint dropped in of what's to come and that's so smart for a show that is leading us on with so many mysteries and presenting so many potential storylines to come to be like we have our end game but we're just gonna put it in the background out of focus right there and you're not even going to realize until we fully come up on it what it actually is. But yeah, I think both of these episodes are really the writers tying up a ton of loose threads, really focusing in on a couple more characters who needed just a little more attention and now have that extra layer who, you know, are ready to go into the finale. And you just, yeah, you feel them really doing that cleanup work with confidence now. Any other thoughts on either of the episodes? Yeah. I guess just the last little thing I wanted to mention was um, when Yeonjin Kim speaks English for the first time, when she screams, stop it, it is so cathartic. It is. It is such a great moment. And you feel the meta catharsis of this actor being like, I am finally speaking a language that every other actor understands in their presence in my character and it has that extra thrill to it i really loved that yeah. moment. she is fucking fantastic She's great. even though it's a gin centric episode it's really again a showcase for her and uh i thought she was just awesome but i thought that moment was like worth the wait of 17 episodes to get her to finally talk to all the other characters you know a character who needs to be heard right yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely it was very gratifying to finally get there and i'm sure cathartic for her too how about you any other final thoughts um let me see no i i'm trying to think of like what stands out to me i would say that i think your moment that you're bringing up is great but then also just on the you know the inverse of that is seeing Jin break down when he's washing blood off of his hands and this is like immediately after he has sort of hinted to Sun that her dad is, you know, a horrible, dangerous human being. I, you get a sense that he really has a lot of anguish about the fact that he has betrayed his own values. 
when you see where he comes from, like essentially he's a fishing, he's a fisherman's kid. Um, he's like a farmer's yeah. kid. Like he knows nothing about any of this stuff. He's just beaten a man into a coma essentially. And, and you can tell how heartbroken he is at the decision that he has made. Um, not even because he really wanted to hurt this guy, but because he's actually doing it to save the person's life. And that's the other thing about it that I thought was so interesting. But yeah, I really liked DDK in this episode. DDK. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. oh, yeah. That's such a good abbreviation. It's a good one, man. <laughs> it sounds like a wrestling finishing <laughs> move. <laughs> Dark side of the ring. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. Yeah, I, I, I love Daniel Day Kim. Um, I think he's a great actor, and I love seeing him anytime he's on screen. Yeah, it's so awesome how, as you say, it's heartbreaking because it takes probably the greatest joy of his life, how much he was in love with this woman, and completely poisons it. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, just for Hurley again, I think it's so great how that episode kind of like shows even more of Jorge Garcia's range. You love when he finally gets involved in the island mysteries. He's kind of rested outside of them this entire time. He's never really involved himself in the ongoing mystery plots. And now, finally, he has one and he can't ignore it. And he's immediately, like, very bumbling and he doesn't wear it well that he has this mystery because he's such an open, honest person. And so you just see him, like, completely short-circuit because of it. But when he heads out on the adventure, it's actually great. Oh, it is amazing. All of his, like, confidence, all of his effort that he's trekking out into this jungle and it makes the island dangerous again for the first time in a while but also i love that it doesn't play him adventuring out as a joke it plays it as this dude has so much determination that even though physically he's not in great shape to go like do this Mm -hmm. he's pushing through Mm -hmm. and he's getting it done and it just makes you love him more yep absolutely i I was just thinking watching him trek across the beach with his shirt yeah. tied around his head. And I forget the song that's playing at the time. It's, it, it, I forget what it's, it is. It's uh, hip hop. Is it? Yeah, it's hip hop. Yeah, but I forget the actual uh, title of the song. But it, yeah, that, that whole thing is a vibe. I love it. It's a great vibe. It is. Yeah. Are we doing power rankings? Ooh, Are we doing yeah. a little power rankings? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You go rankings? ahead. All right, all right. You go ahead. All right. Because I love your idea for the power rankings, but I'm also just going to like shamelessly riff on them again. Oh, I know you are. All right. Because <laughs> I'm a parasite. Okay. I'm trying to think of the easiest way to explain this. This pod's power rankings are ranking the mystical, supernatural, spiritual elements on various TV shows. And here we go. All right. So at five, I've got the gods of Battlestar Galactica. Why? Because we don't ever know what they wanted, what he, she, they, them ever really wanted from Baltar, from the Cylons, from Starbuck. We, we don't know. We have no idea. They remain mysterious. They remain faceless. We don't know. Maybe even mysterious to uh, Ronald D. Moore. I think so. Saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're not sure. On the flip side of that, at number four, I'm going to go with the many-faced god from Game of Thrones. Why? Because you get to wear all these faces. You get to worship in this weird sort of catacomby place with, like, mannequins with, like, faces all over them. It's creepy. It's weird. You get to hang out with medieval Jesus. And, yeah, you learn how to assassinate people. We know what the many-faced god is all about. So, yeah, I got to give them their props. Yeah, any religion that's also a death cult, it's just instant bad vibes, oh, but yes. also kind of fucking awesome. Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm-hmm. At number three, 
I'm going to go with Michael from The Good Place. Mm-hmm. I'm going to oh, go with the, yeah. nice. Yes. Yeah, uh-huh. dude. Yeah. And you know what? My favorite moment is actually in season one where um, I believe it's Kristen Bell calls him out and says, you know, actually, we're all, we're in hell here, right? And he tries to play it like, no, 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 no. Like, we're all, we're all good here. And then he just breaks out into laughter. And it's the most demonic, it awesome is. laugh. Ooh, it oh, is so, dancing it is, kills yes, it. it just, Getting back to dancing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The fucking reigning king of TV. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, that part made me laugh and then also made me really uncomfortable and a little bit scared when I saw that. Great performance there. Yeah. At two, I mean, we're talking about it this episode, so I'm just going to go with it. They are powerful. They are everywhere. They are overseeing everything. It's the numbers from Lost. We got to give them their props. Don't sleep on them. And then at, at number one, at number one, I think it'll be interesting to see if this is also your number one. My number mm-hmm. one is uh, The Yellow King. Okay. Yes. All mm-hmm. right. It's not. Oh, me, okay. All right. Interesting. The Yellow King and his domain yes. is definitely on Yeah, the list. Yellow King, or as Charlie in whatever prison that was called him, the Yellow King. <laughs> the, the Yellow, Yellow King. King. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, he's at number one. That guy is, uh, yeah, he, he's got it in spades. He does. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to throw him on at, at the bottom of my list. Mm-hmm. Keep going. But he's definitely, he's huge. And my, my number one is similar. Okay. Very similar vibe, okay. I will I run say. It out. All right, go for it. And number three, and I, oh man, I shiver, I hesitate, I slide this <laughs> nomination across the table with a massive amount of guilt and trepidation okay. right now, because I don't know if you've heard about this interview that Joss Whedon just oh, gave, boy. I believe in New York Magazine, but it was one of the most creepy, self-incriminating, yeah. horrible interviews of all time basically talking about how he could not resist sleeping with cast members on his TV shows because they were beautiful and needy and he knew, quote, he would regret it if he didn't. Uh, Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's really bad, dude. He is toxic as fuck. That being said, I mean, uh, God, I gotta give it up for the Hellmouth on Buffy, man. Oh, okay, yeah, okay, all right. This thing Mm -hmm. that's this source of all of this supernatural evil that can just have one world-ending crisis after another pour out of it. I mean, it's great, it's great. And the fact that it's centered over a high school is just... It's perfect, yeah. Yeah, so we got the Yellow King, we got the Hellmouth. I gotta put the island. Oh, okay. I'm just going to go with the whole whole island. island. That's fair. I like that. Yeah. It's an entity. It is. It is. And the numbers are a part of that. And the numbers are probably the most iconic part of that. But for me, putting it all under the island, because the island to me is what gives, is the engine that drives the numbers even, you know? And it is the ultimate mystery, the ultimate metaphor of this show. And uh, I think it's a great all-time supernatural element on tv it is totemic i agree with you you know you think of people lost on an island now and you think of the spooky power of the island on lost so my number one as i said similar vibe to you is bob oh yeah on twin peaks i think especially after getting his origin Mm -hmm. and just how horrifying he is And how he is kind of this early prototypical example of really intense horror movie imagery invading television along with strong serialization for the first time. And just 
ultimately being the creepiest, the most overwhelming, the most like taking one scary idea of this young girl's murder and expanding it out into this supernatural entity that is threatening the entire world. Oof. Uh, I got to go one. with Bob That's at a number good one. one yeah, man. I respect that. That's a very, very good Thanks. choice, man. I like that. Hell yeah. Oof. You know what time it is, right? All right. We naming some episodes, we'll bro. We'll see if you can name some episodes. Here we go. That's right. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you are not you are not participating at all. All right. Here we go. Do you do you have a trivia game that you think you would you would let oh, me inflict wow. on you at some point? I don't point? know if I can if oof. we were to turn the I'd tables. have to think about that. I I it's I have thought about this yeah. before and then my pride was like I know you got useless movie and somewhat, TV trivia. But like I also I thought like my, my ego would not suffer. Any sort of like any loss. Oh, oh, That's I really see. what this yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. You would bounce back from this too quickly. <laughs> you wouldn't hold all these psychic scars week after week as right. I do. Well, that's mm-hmm. fair. You're right. You're right. There's no pleasure in no, sadism in it. There's no schadenfreude. I am not a sadist side, so at right. all. You're right. We're doing we this are. in the right way. Let's, all right. Yeah, here we yeah, go. Great, great. Glad we got that. Clear. Number one. In this season five episode of The Wire, directed by Dan Adius. McNulty and Freeman sensationalize the Red Ribbon killer. Omar returns to Baltimore seeking revenge for the death of a close friend. Marlo Stanfield consolidates power and Chris Partlow confronts Proposition Joe. Oh, Prop Joe. I know. <laughs> the fucking best, man. He really is, man. Oh, yeah. Hmm. 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 Um. Give me, give me a little hint about this episode. Uh, so it's title. the fourth episode of the fifth season. Only one word in the title. Only one word? Mm-hmm. Not two words, the nope. other being the... Just, yeah, nope, just Damn, one I'm, word. I'm yeah. out to see now. Oh, totally okay, lost. well, you want me to Without tell you? the V. <laughs> no, 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 give me give me a little hint. Um, Let's see, I'm trying to see who it's... Uh, Let's see here. This is one of the episodes in which Clay Davis uh, leaves a courthouse and is confronted by journalists, reporters, you know, and the like. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The first, uh, the previous episode was not for attribution, mm-hmm. and the next episode, the following episode, was a uh, react quotes. Right, right. It's all journalism phrases for this season. And I believe the, I, I don't know what you want to call it, but the, the quote that is at the beginning of every episode of The Wire is from Scott Timbleton. It just simply says, buyer's market out there. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. Any any hint about the word itself? Um, it's about change. One thing to another. But it has, having something to do with journalism. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it, season five is predominantly about journalism it's it's yeah. i would not say that the episode the title itself is not referring to journalism specifically okay. no. no no i don't, don't know, know it. okay so fourth episode of the yeah. fifth season of the wire is called transitions transitions mm-hmm. yeah yeah more just a, a writing term yeah exactly general. yeah it's yeah. just yeah you know the funny thing about season five of the wire which i think we both agree is the weakest season even though yes. you know it still has amazing stuff in it. yeah it's still great I mean, you needed it just to wrap up Omar and Marlo's storylines and, and all that and give a little resolution to McNulty as well. But yeah, like, it's funny how, you know, journalism is like the thing that's closest to David Simon, actually. I mean, he was a journalist. And, and so it's like really getting into the weeds with his profession right. specifically. And I feel like he had 
the least to say about it, ironically. Or maybe he was too close to I it think maybe as a so. subject. Matter, I think he, you know, I, I agree with you. And then I also feel like that element of the show, I would have introduced it in season two. Like, I think that there was enough room in season two to explore both the docks and explore the culture of the newsroom in Baltimore. I think you could have done that. Because even though season two ends so well, yeah. in the beginning, you're like, it does feel a little sparse. It does. It's so jarring. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah that's interesting. All right. Here we go. Second one. Yeah. Here we go. So Next. Robert Becker directed the 24th episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, wherein the crew respond to a distress call from Dr. Paul Mannheim. Picard confronts his past in the form of his former lover, Janice. And this episode was uh, written in five days. Um, it was heavily influenced by Casablanca. Yes. It's called We'll Always Have Paris. Exactly. Ding, 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 ding. God, dude. Season one of TNG <laughs> is so fucking bad. Especially when you look at this unbelievably stacked cast they I know. have. Patrick Stewart doing insanely heroic work. <laughs> and the, the production values, the episodes themselves are so bad. They are, are just so ramshackle. There's this whole part where he goes to this Parisian cafe on the holodeck and it looks like it looks so bad. <laughs> look like sesame street it looks like they just raided a home goods for all of its parisian <laughs> decorations and put them into like a barren like living room <laughs> essentially and there's a guy in the background who is playing some sort of a um futuristic accordion <laughs> oh what okay <laughs> just to make it feel french yeah, no <laughs> but it's literally like just a series of um glass tubes for bongs that are like arranged that he is like stroking like they're multicolored dicks it's so terrible uh, yeah uh, that's terrible anyway all right yeah last one yeah. here we go cool okay i'm kind of ashamed and disgusted because i'm like yeah i got you that, know one. that one but i had to watch mm-hmm. all of season one of tng mm-hmm. to do yeah. it because you're just debasing yourself with every win i really was i really was all right In this second season of The Sopranos, Junior Soprano reunites with an old girlfriend while under house arrest, while Tony spends time in legitimate waste management at the request of his lawyer. Yeah, so many, like, lawyer plot lines popping up there. Huh. Hmm. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Season two. Two words. Well, it's not D-girl. No. It's not commendatory. No. It's not a knight in white satin armor. No. Not from where to eternity. No. Nope. It's two words. Um, is it house arrest? It is. Uh, nice. There you go. Oh, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So did you watch all of season two? I did. Yeah. I mean, I've seen. After the... we finished The Sopranos? Oh. Yeah, um, yeah. No, for sure. I mean, I've seen season two before, but I did not rewatch it after we saw season one. No. Okay, I, I watched it again. It's it's good, really. It's good, good man. It's good. It's a contender for a goat, and I think season five is as I well. I know. Oh, Honestly, man. we both gotta just watch the whole show again and be like, <sighs> I don't know. I just feel like a double dip is coming on that series eventually. Maybe maybe you will wait a little while we're gonna, and we're suffering. We're slaving for some the other listeners. Shows? Yeah, slaving yeah, for you, right. listeners. <laughs> but at the same time, it just feels inevitable. I think you're that right. we come back to the Sopranos yeah, you're at right. some point. Oh my yeah. god. Oof. Richie, um, Richie April. God, Oof. what an amazing storyline. Yep. 
What an ending. What an exit (laughs) that dude has from that show. It's so good. Man. Yeah. Yeah, man. Another one in the books. Coming back next week with, uh, what is it? I believe Deus Ex Machina and Do No Harm. Yeah. Another really strong pair of episodes. Hyped to talk about those. Yeah, looking forward to taking those apart. For sure. For sure. But uh, I'm just saying, conclusion, everybody. We hope you'll uh, follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow and rate the show on Spotify now. So if you want to leave us a star rating, we really appreciate that on either one of those. You can email us questions at goatseasonpod at gmail.com. And uh, you can also hit us up on our Instagram at goatseasonpod. I want to thank Janice O'Leary for our artwork, Josh Sullivan for our intro music, and Battlequake for our outro. And we'll see you next week. Peace. Peace. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market hi I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.